This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's getting really hot in here. It's so hot. It's Getting Hot in Here is a programme about giving voice to the people in our community working for environmental and social change. The climate emergency is the defining issue of our lifetime. Our aim is to bring you content that helps us understand the climate crisis and explore actions to help us all to save ourselves. Kia ora, welcome to another episode of It's Getting Hot in Here. I'm Tanya Didham. The physical impact of the climate crisis is now impossible to ignore, but experts are becoming increasingly worried about the effects of climate anxiety on people's mental well-being especially for young people. Clinical psychologists are advising action to help combat this anxiety. Do something, either as an individual or join a group for collective action. As we see signs of anxiety, that action is important to take. And also talking about collectively working together in groups, about international collaboration, those things are really, really important for people to be doing. Extinction Rebellion is one such group that does take action, so Laura decided to find out a bit more. I'm speaking with Sienna Fitzjohn from Extinction Rebellion, Otautahi. Welcome. Hi, lovely to be here. Many of our listeners are probably aware of Extinction Rebellion, Otautahi being a protest group. Is that how you would describe Extinction Rebellion? I'm not sure if I would describe it like protest is something that we do, but that's not how I would describe the group. The group's, um, I guess, a response to the different types of environmental and social crises that we're facing. So protesting is when we're in the public eye, but there's a lot that we do outside of that that forms our identity. So what's the purpose? The purpose of Extinction Rebellion is to recognise and call attention to the fact that we're in a climate and ecological emergency which among social collapse and, and other sort of disastrous effects um, is is a serious threat to our survival as a species and so Extinction Rebellion rose up to recognise that um, and to do everything that we can whilst we've still got the time to mitigate the effects of that ecological collapse. We are here to demand that the government takes immediate action on these problems. This is something that we can fix. So it's a global movement? It is. It's really um, exciting and heartening to see just how many places have formed groups of their own and have kind of taken the name Extinction Rebellion and, and really run with it. So I first heard about Extinction Rebellion last year when I was actually taking some time out from activism and having a bit of a break uh, in the UK with some family. And since then, since its initial sort of starting up, we're hearing about protests happening in the Congo, in Mexico, Austria, just all all over the world, Hong Kong. Yeah, so it really is has become a global thing. Now, when we talk about protest, it's specifically nonviolent direct yes. action, right? Yeah, nonviolent direct action is kind of one of the core, um, sort of at the core of Extinction Rebellion. Um, and of course, nonviolence is it's difficult to um, describe because everyone has a slightly different interpretation of what counts as violent behaviour. Um, so that's actually something we like to open up for discussion at the beginning of any 
is anytime we're going to do an action, we like to open up the floor to say, actually, well, what do we mean by nonviolence and what what is it going to mean in this particular context? It's outrageous that the police force under Khan and Cressida Dick, well, because you don't believe in law and order. There's a bit of a fear of, you know, going up against the state. There's a fear of change. How do you get over that? How do you encourage people to fight their fears? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Um, fear is a really difficult emotion to work with. Um, and I think fear and anxiety is experienced by many people for all sorts of different reasons at the moment. So sometimes XR can be a place of actually building a really strong community, strong supportive community that whilst, yes, it's a bit nerve-wracking taking part in direct action for the first time, many people kind of experience sort of a, a release or a, a comfort in in that strong community because we're talking about things that they've been scared about for a long time and we're opening up a space for us to have deep emotional conversations about our fears and about grief and about what's happening in the world that causes so many people a lot of anxiety. So I think whilst we do see a bit of initial nervousness at the thought of, you know, putting yourself on the front lines and, you know, opening up yourself to the chance of getting arrested, I think in comparison to the the sort of fear of um, of actually what's actually happening to the world, you know, this feels like the lesser fear to me. For all the protesters here, for the government, for everybody, this is absolutely the right thing to do to get everybody to wake up. How many members have you got locally? That's a hard one, um, actually, because uh, it depends on what you count as a member. There's lots of people that are on our emailing list and, and sort of events page and things like that. And we actually have found there's a huge number of people that show up to the um, to the meetings sometimes. You could have sort of 40 people in the room, which is it's a massive increase in the number of people that are engaged and showing up to our events when you compare it to sort of when I was doing climate activism in Christchurch about five years ago. I think in terms of the amount of people that we're reaching and that are tending to hear about what we're doing, uh, we're definitely growing. Are you targeting national interests or local interests here as far as trying to get governments to change policy? Well, one of the global Extinction Rebellion demands is that the government announce a, well, declare a climate and ecological emergency. Madam Speaker, we have done more in 24 months than any government in New Zealand has ever done on climate action. But we have not done it alone. There has been 170,000 New Zealanders taking to the street, calling for that action, not for hope, Madam Speaker, but calling for that action around the world. But whilst we recognise that the government do need to respond much more strongly and actually set in place some good policies, the change that we need as a society is much bigger and much deeper than that. And um, that's going to need to happen at every level. So um, on a local, in local body government capacity, but also outside of those organisational bodies like governments, it needs to happen as a, an internal change within yourself and an interpersonal change with your friends, your family, your community. It's interesting. I went to a talk recently. There was advice to the crowd there that, yes, we need to mobilise 
join activist groups, get the voices out there so that the government starts to pay attention because at the moment they fear corporations and big donors more than Mm. they fear the disobedient crowd. But also we have to live or be the change that we want to see. We We have to start creating infrastructure ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that's sometimes one of the difficulties that I have within the movement is that oftentimes it's framed as we need to ask someone else to do something about this. And that sort of reinforces the government's power, which in in some cases it's um, it's giving away our autonomy and it's not recognising the massive capacity that every individual has to make changes within themselves and within the community and recognise that there is some huge power imbalances within society of who has what, who has what opportunity, who has what power to make decisions and that if we're going to adapt to the climate crisis, all of those big power imbalances are going to need to shift. So would you say Extinction Rebellion is more reform or revolution? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, They've often described themselves as, you know, the alarm bells. So I think as an identity, as a movement, they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily saying, look, we've got all the answers here. But what they are demanding is to have a citizens' assembly, which, um, if people imagine it, slightly like jury duty. So a diverse number of the population is picked out to then make decisions with regards to, you know, make decisions with that climate and ecological emergency in mind. And how do they get informed to make these decisions, these citizens' assemblies? That, I mean, the the question of how informed someone is to make a decision, I think, is sometimes looking in the wrong place. Um, Because I think as humans, um, we're natural problem solvers. And we're incredibly good problem solvers if there's a diverse amount of people in the room. Um, so a lot of studies have been done on sort of group dynamics and they found that even if you collect, say, the top problem-solving humans, get them all in the room together, the solutions to problems that they're going to come up with aren't often as good or as applicable as the solutions that a group of completely diverse individuals will come up with. So I think the Citizens' Assembly is a way of recognising that diversity of knowledge and diversity of experience um, is going to trump that the people that have the most information. Mm. Although there is a place for technical expertise. I mean, that's where the scientists come into it. Just recently, 11,000 scientists have told us, hey, you know, world, start paying attention to this climate emergency. Mm. Yes, no, I, I agree. There is, there is, in certain spaces, there is the need for technical expertise. But what I found through doing my master's in science communication is that often we give um, an epistemic privilege to the sciences when sometimes that's not actually appropriate for the kinds of changes that we need. Um, the kinds of changes that we need to happen on a structural level are deep interpersonal changes and changing the ways that we know things. Um, so while scientists have a have a really good grip on what's going on in the biophysical sense in terms of the social dynamic sense and the knowledge and understanding of inequality issues, that kind of knowledge uh, the scientists can't give us. And sometimes I think we get stuck in certain narratives about the climate crisis and we often allow our discussions to be framed in a scientific sense 
when the framing of those conversations really limits how we conceive of the problem and it limits the amount of solutions and the kinds of solutions that will develop. Indigenous knowledge, the knowledge that comes from growing up with, with very little, the knowledge that it comes from being excluded um, from society if you've got you know, if you've got a certain disability. There are all sorts of different types of knowledge that we actually need to address this problem properly. And I think always giving a platform to the scientists, well, for one, it hasn't really worked. Our scientific understanding of the problem has increased because of we're exposed to so much science um, and everyone, everyone has a pretty good grip on how it works. But that hasn't corresponded with, with, the change. with the change that we need. Recently, there have been reports in the media that police are starting to really crack down on XR protests. We will continue to arrest people. I've been a police officer for 36 years. I have never known an operation, a single operation in which over 700 people have been arrested. The main thing that drew me towards XR uh, was just that it, ha- it seemed to just be igniting people's imagination. And you were seeing people that had never been involved in a protest movement before or been involved in activism before just suddenly being inspired to come along and do something. The climate change protests in London are entering their fifth day. More than a thousand police officers are deployed to cover the demonstration. Um, I think that interaction with police um, is always a conversation that's going to be ongoing within the movement because everyone's experiences with police are diverse and I think that even uh, one conversation that came up recently was the different treatment that a that a Māori activist had by police at one of our protests. Um, Can you tell us about that? Yeah without wanting to go into too much um, too much detail but uh, basically this Māori activist who was um, who was with us on one of the protests was the first to be arrested and the last to be let out and he described his experience of that police process as not being quite as light-hearted as the experience that many other Pākehā activists had. So we recognise that within the police there is still that deep structural racism, and that's not just within police, that's within society itself. So, um, you know, police are a victim of social norms as much as anyone, but the level of power that they have to to exercise those biases um, is obviously heightened by their position of responsibility. I think there's been... I think we're really, really privileged in New Zealand because, for the most part, when we go into a protest, we do not expect extreme violence from the police. And in many parts of the world, they do. Um, So activists, you know, they, they risk their lives in other countries to take part in environmental action. And that's something that we have never had to really consider as activists in New Zealand. Um, So I think we're very, very lucky. Whether or not police are going to start taking a stronger stance against XR is, is I guess, something we'll have to wait. It's kind of a wait-and-see thing, because I think a lot of the time we manage to maintain quite good relationships with the police. But with more and more actions Mm. happening... You never know if that's going to change. Yeah, yeah I, it just got me thinking. It seemed like there was a little bit of a global crackdown on mm. XR. And does that mean you're becoming more effective? <laughs> and the states are starting to take notice. Yes, it could be. Um, and also I think perhaps in the past when protests have been smaller um, with less people, 
the most strategic um, decision for police and for the corporations being targeted is to leave us alone. You know, don't don't move them, don't arrest them, don't bother. Let's stay quiet, and they'll go away. Um, and we've seen that happen with a lot of our protests, where the the response to us is less action rather than more. But perhaps with the amount of new people that we're attracting, and you know, with more numbers comes more capacity. So you can you can do bigger things. You can be more disruptive with more people. So perhaps with that trend, they're starting to say actually maybe. You know, maybe this has gone far enough, and and starting to introduce those little law changes that you know that just make what we do more difficult. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, it's it's difficult to. I'd be really hesitant to tar all police with the same brush as well, because I think there's a lot of discretionary powers that come with being um, a police man or woman. And whilst sometimes those discretionary powers are abused and you know, people do end up being on the end of some very rough behaviour from police. There's a lot of discretion to actually, you know, be kind and gentle and supportive, and we've seen that as well. So Christchurch City Council and Environment Canterbury have both declared climate emergencies? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Um, Fair play to them. That Mm -hmm. was the right decision. National government's next in your sights? Yes. Like I said, I think that... Demanding that declaration from the government should be built into all of the protests and all of the sort of actions we do. What I get potentially more energised by is really looking at the industries that are heavily polluting and that are really endangering our climate by continuing. Taking action to essentially to shut down those industries is what gives me more energy. And I think once you really start to get people ignited to shut those industries down and to to take away their social licence to operate, the government, I think, will follow suit. We have committed ourselves to a 1.5 degree target that we are embedding in legislation, not just because of the statements of the Paris Agreement, but because that is what is required if we are to show our Pacific neighbours that we understand the impacts above 1.5 degrees will have on them, it is real. But I think putting all of our efforts into asking the government to make an announcement, you know, once that announcement's made... They still need to create these. Cha- they still need to create the changes. Um, right. So the declaration is is only um, it's only a declaration until that's followed up by action. And there are some challenges ahead. It's going to be a massive challenge, um, particularly for those communities whose whole identity are really entw- is really entwined with things like the coal industry. And, I and think they're worried about jobs. You know, yeah, those absolutely. have been the traditional jobs that have kept their families fed and housed. So how do you respond to that? I don't think there's an easy way to respond to that. Um, I mean, I have absolute sympathy um, with with the people who who feel that something something really important is being taken away from them, um, and then they have no power over that. Um, It's heartbreaking, and it's sad, and it's really difficult. But I think that we are going to have to make those changes. Everyone's losing something, whether it's the river that you used to love swimming in or, you know, the beach that's now being swallowed up by the ocean or a species that's just gone extinct or, you know, the terrible inequality and conflict that's caused by climate change. Everyone is losing something and it's horrific 
and I think we really need to be supportive of people who are going to lose their jobs once the fossil fuel industry folds and we want to create a just transition for those people. Okay. If any listeners want to engage with XR, find out more, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so if you um, if you just look Extinction Rebellion Aotearoa or Extinction Rebellion New Zealand, you'll get taken to a page um, and then from there it's very easy to connect it's with really the fun. local movement. Like I think that's something um, that's something that people might might miss um, from you know just seeing an article in the paper or driving past a protest. Like we have a good time, you know. We we've been teaching people how to drum. We've been creating you know ridiculous places just to be silly and to be ourselves and to um, you know share food with one another and share stories and build our connection as human beings not just as activists we really welcome you whether or not you're a lawbreaker or a cake baker it's um <laughs> you know <laughs> we, we want to have you on board thanks so much for your time today awesome thank you so much for having me for it's getting hot in here i'm sheldon merther assisting from the cooling center this time news flash Climate change is at boiling point in the political cauldron. It's 2020 and it's surely a year to move past all the talk and on to the action. So we are fanning the idea that protesting is a cool thing to do. Right here, right now is where we draw the line. Not only do you get to let off some steam, you meet many like-motivated people. Great group because there's something for everybody. We have a lot of academics who'll do the research. We have a lot of people things. who are creative, so they'll maybe make like signs or banner. Uh, people who are good writers. There's a place for everybody there, which is really nice. People who will go with you all the way on this march of passion. This is called unity. That's even if you're marched all the way to jail. First time I've ever been arrested. First time I've ever been in a protest of this uh, importance. How exactly did you get involved with protesting? Um, started after the election, maybe like eight years While ago. While so, chatting um, to proactive activist Josie Butler in the calling centre studio, Victoria Harwood discovered protest arrest mightn't be as scary as it seems on the surface, and that, among other things, could be reason enough to think twice about protesting in a good way. My name's Josie Butler. I'm a registered nurse and activist. Um, I guess most famously known for throwing the dildo at Stephen Joyce, but also been involved in a lot of other causes. Currently involved in the Extinction Rebellion group and Tangata Whenua Extinction Rebellion group and Free Western Sahara Solidarity Action. Brief summary on me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I didn't know you were the one who threw the dildo. It's even joined. You're a national hero. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so what exactly do you think protesting achieves? Um, I guess once you've tried every other means of changing something, it's a really good way to show public support around an issue, um, to put pressure on corporations or, or the government to make change. I guess when you read the news, you sit around and you feel really depressed and lame, but I always find if you take that action step, then that takes away those feelings. Um, And it's also a really good way to kind of unite communities and create a really positive atmosphere where people feel less disempowered and like they are doing something. 
Yeah, and what kind of risks are associated with attending protests? I guess it depends on your definition of risks. Mine's probably changed, having been involved in activism for a while. Um, and I guess the risk level's always whatever you feel comfortable doing. Um, the, the potential risks are that you could be arrested if you're putting yourself in a role where that could happen. Those are the only risks I can really think of. Mostly it's a, it's a bloody good time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You said so. You said it's changed for you a little bit, just with experience. I guess I started off um, with like doing petitions and talking to my MP and going through all the kind of democratic ways of trying to enact change, and got really quite got nowhere. And then so kind of started doing more and more stronger actions. I guess you could say. Um, and with that comes a lot of public scrutiny um, when you're in the media a lot, which I've gotten really re- used to now. And my advice for people around that is just never read the comment sections on news articles, which I think we all know. And then also with regards to being arrested, I've been arrested more times than I can count. And it's not something that concerns me anymore. It hasn't affected my career. It hasn't affected my life in any way. But I understand for other people, it's quite a huge thing. Yeah. (laughs) What's it like being arrested for something like that? All my experiences have been really positive because you're always in a group of people who are all doing the same thing. Um, and as you're getting taken away by the police, people are normally singing or chanting for you. Um, and then when you get taken down to the station, all, all the times I've been arrested, you're always in a cell with other people. So the last one I did, we had about maybe six women all in the like the drunk tank and we were just doing yoga and talking about our love lives. And, it was, yeah, it was just a really nice time. <laughs> I guess I expected it would affect my career significantly. I thought it would be frightening. I thought I might get hurt by the police. Um, I thought, yeah, I just thought it would be a really scary, overwhelming experience. But for me personally, it hasn't been. And I think we're quite lucky in ways with the police in New Zealand that we do have that sort of liberty to to do these sort of things and have a positive experience because most other places around the world, if you do some of the things that we've done, you'd likely be shot. So we're very fortunate here. So I try and take advantage of that Mm. (laughs) benefit as much as I can for all the people around the world who don't have such opportunities I guess you could say. Arrest is actually part of the tactics of the group here. They're describing this action as non-violent civil disobedience. I really feel that uh, nothing is being done to, to combat climate change. Next time on the program, how our diet impacts the climate. Animal agriculture is also responsible for causing some of the worst environmental calamities that we are currently facing as a species. According to research from the New Zealand Vegetarian Society, we knew that 1 in 10 Kiwis were avoiding meat some or all of the time, but it seems that more and more New Zealanders are looking at plant-based alternatives. You've been listening to It's Getting Hot In Here on Plains FM. If you want to check out the podcast, go to the Plains FM website. Many thanks to everyone who helped make this program, Tanya Didham, Victoria Harwood and Sheldon Murtha. Thanks also to Sally Carlton, who supplied the audio clip of psychologist Brian Dixon from her excellent podcast episode on climate anxiety. Check out her program, Speak Up Kororotia, on the Plains FM website. And I'm Laura Gartner. Thank you for listening. Matewa. wa.